And the person in the meeting said, well, you know, we shut people out of meetings if they're late because it shows they don't care. It shows they don't value other people's time. Now, I kind of get that to a point, except that I'd just got there after two of the worst hours I'd had for ages, leaving a screaming child going into school. That showed my commitment to coming into work. I was confident enough to challenge that behaviour. We all need to challenge that behaviour from our colleagues and our employees when they make sweeping statements like that. Welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. I'm Ferina Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. As you regular listeners will know, with this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme, I passionately want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. Um, you can take the first step to get involved offline. Well, actually still online, but, you know, away from the podcast. Um, you can take the first step to join a network of like-minded fellows from lots of different sectors by registering interest today on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest. Um, applications to our fellowship will open very soon. So do register if you want to get a senior leader mentor and supportive peer network. Now, today I'm interviewing the inspirational Anita Kirby-New. We do talk about why chickens are critical to her lockdown experience. We talk quite frankly about her making choices about how she was bringing up her four children alongside a leadership career, making choices about going freelance and coming back into a senior role. And, you know, the practicalities of looking after children with learning difficulties and the additional pressures that brings and what she's learned from that and I believe there are things that we can all take from it and we also do talk about negotiating for money which I do think is important especially because the gender pay gap is still there and seems to be growing now with coronavirus. So Anita and I know each other really well because she's one of the mentors on the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. So this is quite an honest and really frank conversation which I enjoyed a lot and I hope you do too. So very warm welcome to the podcast, Anita. Um, why don't we start with you introducing yourself and your family? Hi, well, I'm Anita Cohen-Nye. I am the mother of four children from seven to 21, two girls, two boys, and married to Matt. We're a blended family with the girl's dad, the two eldest as well. So really, we consider ourselves to be a family of seven Wow. And how has lockdown been for you so far? Long and tiring and multiple challenges of I work full time. So I'm working from home. Very demanding job, particularly in the charity and hospitality sector, which has been badly hit both sides. So sort of 80 hour weeks for the last four months while juggling two children at home, one of whom with special needs and one 18 year old not doing her A-levels and displeased a 21-year-old doing her university exams at home. So it's been a challenge. It's been some good mm. bits too, but to pretend that it's been anything other than exhausting would be a lie. Mm, I can imagine. I've seen on Twitter some of your pictures of young ducklings and chicks hatching and they really brightened my day I have to say and I <laughs> I just enjoy looking even though obviously I don't have the joy of seeing them. I think bringing it back to these you know simple things that are growing is such yeah. a 
lovely, yeah. lovely thing. And but I'm sure by the sound of it, you don't really get to see those so much. Oh, at no, all. I do. I mean, that's I think that's part of my advice to people. You know, a large chunk of my life, sort of through the every childhood stuff and through YHA, is around you know how you get children and young people to enjoy a broad range of experiences and the outdoors is a large part of that and one of the things that has helped keep me well during the last four months and kept the children well we are privileged to live in the middle of the forest we're privileged to have a big back garden we are very lucky to have chicklings and chicklings chicks and ducklings and those things I make time to go and see them that's one of the big things for me as a parent is to have that outdoor time by myself and with the children really does adjust your well-being without a doubt though chickens as well as children being noisy we have rather added to our workload and <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine so tell us a bit more about what you do at YHA okay so I'm the executive director for strategy and engagement that's quite a broad title so it means I'm responsible for the organization's direction of travel I pull together our strategic approach our plans our programs with the rest of my executive colleagues, small team, and report to the board on what we're going to do over the years ahead. And then the engagement part of the work kind of does what it says on the tin, but that's all of our marketing, communications, our membership. E-commerce runs through me, which is about £30 million of the organisation's income. Website, our digital, social media, anything that's about reaching out and contacting people outside of the organisation. So obviously you can imagine both of those over the last four months have been particularly important, not least that we just launched our new strategy for the next 10 years on the 1st of March, which was broadly the first day that everyone started to realise that the pandemic was going to hit everybody very, very hard. So being a director of strategy, when your strategy is kind of at risk in front of your eyes, has been quite a challenge as well for the last four months. I can imagine. And we should say that your organisation is a charity and is running youth hostels across yeah. uh, England and Wales. So very much cutting across the sector that is heavily affected right now. So obviously you've been a mentor on the Leaders Plus Fellowship and I think we got to know each other via Twitter, but I said, who is, you know, someone Thank who you. is... An yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I obviously have been following your career over the last few years. And what I thought was really interesting is when I got to know you, you'd been a chief exec of charities yeah. and then you've chosen to go into consulting and yeah. then you've chosen to go back into yeah. a day job and I, I just uh, <laughs> can you just talk us through a bit about your journey what, yeah okay so I've always had what I think years ago was called a portfolio career so I've always done bits of everything so that's not new so right from before kids I always was, I think what they call, the RSA calls it, you know, a sort of social entrepreneur, entrepreneur that, or someone that, who thinks like a system but behaves like an entrepreneur. So I've always been a fix-it type person trying to find solutions. So even at school, I was setting up community projects. And then that's been something I've done throughout my career. So that bit's not changed, that piece around running entrepreneur type initiatives running community pieces, running charitable startups. That's not new and it's always been there, even alongside full-time jobs. I think the change for me came, obviously, as many people did, when I had children. I was working at the Red Cross as head of education, very demanding job, lots of travel, lots of work. And the organisation then was slightly ahead of the curve in trying to look at homework balance. 
So even though it was quite a macho organisation, it was and probably still is quite a macho organisation in its attitudes, it had a director of HR there, Roger Smith, who was really prepared to look at that. And I studied the work of as they were then. I think it was parents at work. And we looked at a whole range of things. And that's when I started working from home. And working from home became part then of how I balanced children and young people. And then how I looked at various part-time roles so I could build consultancy up alongside that. And what that gave me was maximum flexibility. What it also meant is I turned down bigger jobs and bigger career jobs than my peers because I wanted the flexibility over the career. And I'm not going to pretend that's not tricky when you look around now and see some of the people that were my peers or even people that I mentored now in bigger CEO jobs. So my career has been always about flexible, always about multiple things happening at once. And within that, a combination nearly always of part-time or established roles and consultancy roles. So it's been 30 years of juggling it. I'm not sure I've got it right yet, but I'm probably not far off for me and my family. Mm -hmm. And what made you go back into a day job? A day job, yeah, day job. If there is something like that for you, or whether maybe you just make any job into a portfolio job. Yeah, it's about going back onto a payroll, isn't it? I think... I think a range of things being, it was a tricky decision, actually, because I had more consultancy work than I could handle. And actually, consultancy probably would have been more lucrative and more flexible. So I'm not going to pretend it wasn't a tricky decision. I'd been through some challenges in the consultancy. I'd had some really bad experiences with some really bad clients that were really challenging for me. So I'll confess that that was part of my thinking. And you've got to do what's right for you in the end. So that was hard. That said, I had loads of wonderful clients. So the idea of giving up a whole network of really amazing organizations was a bit of a challenge. The flip side of that was, and it was interesting because people asked me why I wasn't going back to a CEO job. So I think the question was less why I was going back to a job. It was more why I wasn't going for a CEO role because I was offered them at the same time. Being totally honest, it was because it was the YHA. I'd done some consultancy work with them. They're an amazing organization. They are a charity, but they behave as one of the biggest social entrepreneurs in the country, social enterprises rather. 50 million quid turnover, remarkable success story. And they really wanted to look at access, inclusion, diversity. They really wanted to look at how they could have more impact. And that for me was really attractive. So it was kind of a range of things, but it was a hardcore not to stay in consultancy. It was a hardcore not to go for a CEO job of an organization of a similar size. But this felt Right. And so far, 18 months in, and despite everything, the challenges now, it still feels right. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've obviously had the chance to speak to lots of inspirational leaders as part of this podcast. And one thing that seems to be coming through is that theme of purpose. Quite often, yeah. people who are like you in very senior roles really choose their next job based on purpose as one of the key factors. I think that's really true. And I think that's true in the in the for-profit, not-for-profit world. I think it's both. And I think it's easier to see it sometimes in the not-for-profit world. But I've got colleagues who work in for-profit companies who've made similar value-based judgments and purpose and what it is they want to do and achieve. And I think that's really important. And I, I think that's particularly important if you're making a decision to weigh that up against your family. And, you know, that's always been the balance for me is not I'm privileged in that I've been able to make choices in my career that have left me to balance my family and work and home well. And it is a privilege because not everybody's got that option. But I think if I was doing something that didn't have purpose, I'd find it that much hard to justify that balance. And I think that's part of it too. Mm. 
Mm. Makes sense. I want to take us back to the moment where you did initially go consultant. And I just wonder what advice, if any, would you give to someone who has currently a steady income, a safe job, is an ambitious leader, has a young child, but wants to be a consultant? What advice, if any, would you give them? I think a range of things. I think research your field well, you know, know what other consultants are out there, what they're offering, what makes you different. So spend the time doing that. Get good legal and financial advice. You know, I stuffed up one of my companies because I didn't handle it well financially. I'm very honest about that. I think get that advice, know how you're structuring your income expenditure, be really clear about understanding taxation benefits, all that stuff. Make sure you understand that before you go into it. Make sure you get good advice on it. Pay for good advice on it if you have to. And then build a network of people. So it's much easier to be a consultant if you have a group of other people to do it with. So find people whose skills complement yourself. Look at being part of a collective because consultancy can be very, very lonely, especially if you're the only person in your organisation. So look at others and reach out to others. And I think if you can do what I've always kind of done on the whole, which is combine some part-time work and regular income, with more flexible entrepreneurial work that's quite useful too not just for the income but having a steady couple of days a week on one project is really useful to allow your rest of your time to be spent something more creative it is hard chasing consultancy it is hard chasing clients it is a graft you have to put in hours and hours to get consultancy and I think that's one of the things that people forget to cost in forget to consider so I think all of those things find a network get good legal advice make sure you've researched your field and preferably it's back to what you said earlier if you're going to do consultancy do what you love because it is hard work so do what you really care about and feel you can add value in and continue to invest in your own professional development I mean many consultants who are great at what they do but haven't done any CPD for years haven't done any reflection for years it's why programs like yours matter It's why other CPD programs for consultancy and flexible working matter. I'm hoping one of the things out of the pandemic is there's so much more online now and opportunities to do that. For consultants, that's particularly important. There's so much rich advice in there. And I'm struck by how you start your advice and then your advice with talking about purpose. But then actually you tell us so clearly you need to focus on the legal stuff and on the financial stuff, which is something uh, not to generalize here but a lot of our listeners are women not all but a lot are women and actually even whether you are negotiating pay in employment or whether you are a consultant just that permission to spend time to think about money I think is quite important I think it's vital so you know I talked earlier around one of the challenges I had with one piece of consultancy and part of that came around well part of that came around because I whistle blew but part of that came around because some of the people there weren't happy with my day rate. Now, I wasn't the highest paid person. I was the most senior person there, but I wasn't the highest paid person. But the highest higher paid people were men, and they were very happy with their consultancy day rates. Nobody questioned them any ever, ever on their day rates. But mine was challenged, even though mine included a whole bunch of other staff. So I had a day rate that included my time and the time of my team that worked for me. The men there had a day rate that just included their time, was higher than mine, And nobody challenged theirs. Everybody challenged mine. That's not new. That's been true throughout my career. Many women will relate to that. 
But that's why it's really important, particularly in consultancy, when you're talking about day rates, to understand what should go into that day rate. That includes all the time you're chasing consultancy or pro bono stuff or your other costs. But also to pitch yourself well against the market and not to be afraid to ask. I see too many women, particularly women, it's, it's true of men too sometimes, but particularly women offering to do too much for free, offering to do too much at a cheap rate. And while that's partly about getting new business, quite often it's a lack of confidence. So knowing your worth, costing your worth, and really promoting that, holding on to it is really, really important. I know I'd encourage anybody. I've always said to people and people in my network do this. If you want to understand what the day rate is, give me a call and we'll talk it through because I commission lots of work and I've been a consultant. If you think you're overcharging or undercharging, ring. I can tell you now that nearly every woman that rings me is undercharging. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It just makes me think about so many things. So, But let's talk about self-worth then and knowing your worth. Did you always feel confident in your worth or was it a process? No, I never did, actually. I think it's only in recent years, I think it was only the, the challenges I had a few years ago in that particular context that actually I got angry and went and researched it and came back actually with a, no, my day rate wasn't too high. It was about 50% too low. And so, no, I don't think, you know, I am very confident. I'm very able. I know my abilities and I know my weaknesses. So, you know, that comes across. But just to be clear, you know, even I am not convinced of my worth. Even I have to go away and sort of, self-evaluate, usually get my husband to kick me. I don't think it's something that comes naturally. I think it comes more naturally to other people than it does to some groups. But I think what I've probably learned over the years is to at least ask the questions. So even though I sometimes don't have a sense of my own worth, I do ask the questions. I'm also now probably more confident in being clear that it was me that had the solutions Quite often as a deputy CEO or a director or as a consultant, you're invisible because the person above you is the person who rightly, or your client, talks about the solutions you put in place. I think the other thing, apart from pay I've got more confident in, and I've realized I've had to, is talking about the things that I have founded, set up, established, succeeded over the years. I think that's a big shift. That's been a big shift for me because for years I didn't do that. And now I do talk about that much more. So I think if one of the things is to research pay, the other is to talk about your successes, not to take away from others, not to pretend you did it alone. I think it's really important to start saying, this is what I've done and this is what I've achieved. Mm, that is so true. And I do think it becomes ingrained. It's almost like you absorb it. So I used to, I'm from Switzerland and in Switzerland, there's a strong social expectation that you don't, you know, you are humble. Humility is extremely yeah. important. And that value of humility doesn't serve me well in a UK context where everyone has on their CV some awards. And it was quite interesting at the beginning. So with Leaders Plus, I was encouraged to apply for awards and got some awards. And at the beginning, when I did sales calls with HR directors, where I tried to convince them to fund places on the fellowship, yeah. I found it really awkward, but I had to notice, I had to get used to it because people told me it is important that you say that because of social proof. And at the beginning, I yeah, always yeah. said, oh, well, I've won this and that award, but obviously I don't want to show off, etc. But now yeah, yeah. it's just a normal, normal show. It's like, yeah, I'm very, very pleased to have won this award. Now we're doing this and that. And it's just, yeah, I think it's just about getting used to it and also acknowledging that 
in the beginning, it feels really awkward to talk about your successes, but the more you do it, the easier it will come. I think that's remarkably true. I think awards are really helpful. I think the third party validation, that's good for marketing, it's good for networking, it's good for positioning. It's good for learning, actually, because you learn as you start writing award applications. You start to learn what you're good at, what you're missing. You know, the questions they ask help shape that. I do think it's a thing, though. And you know, I was laughing with my husband the other day. I was looking at someone very impressive, their profile on LinkedIn, and I came away a little bit, oh, my God, you know, they're, they're amazing. And then he pointed out that everything they'd put as their major achievements, I do over a couple of weeks but don't really think about it because it's become normal. And that's not picking myself up. It was more the fact that the things you do and our successes do become normal. They become typical. And then we raise the bar a bit more for ourselves rather than stopping sometimes and thinking what I have already achieved has been remarkable. And it was quite a useful exercise for me. Not that this person was any less impressive because of that, but it's a useful exercise for me to go back and go, well, hang on, no, I've done all of those things. I did all of those things 20 years ago. And that was quite helpful because we forget what we have achieved. We forget what we've done. And that's why awards, that's why rewriting our CV every now and again. That's why practicing our sales pitch every now and again. That really matters. That really matters for self-validation, you know, for our positioning. And you can do that and still be humble. They're not separate things. As long as we're as aware of our needs for development as we are aware of our successes, we'll be okay is if you move to the point where you believe your own hype as well, that becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all seen examples of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about something completely different as well. So I read some of your articles online and one was about class. Yeah. And I was just interested in, in so obviously I've studied gender quite a lot and it's clear that, and also parents and it's quite clear that people think you're less committed at work if you are a parent and look after your children i.e if you have taken maternity leave or if you work flexibly as a father but also yeah we also know it has an impact on pay and so on and so forth not to be depressing but just that's what the research tells us so i'm interested in your view about class do you think class has an impact on career progression and have you had any experience of that yourself Oh, massively. Yes, to both those. And we don't talk about class very well in this country, right? It's hysterical. We're one of the biggest class systems in the world. We pretend it doesn't exist because we haven't really got the words for it properly often. But yeah, without a doubt. So it does exist. It exists in the things that we value. So, you know, I'll use the graduate example quite a lot. And I think that's probably one of the articles you read. You know, we really value graduate at all cost. And yet what graduation, what graduate does is, you know, ladle a family or a young person with a whole bunch of debt and it often encourages them to move away from the community in which they live, often never to return. It tells them that they need to be better than they are and better than the community they came from. And we talk a lot about the working class and often conflate that with disadvantage. And we assume that they need rescuing. We assume that they are in the charity sector Quite often, actually, it's almost the last taboo. We recognise that we need, you know, disabled voices on our boards. We recognise we need certainly, you know, VME voices on our boards. We recognise we need people from the LGBT community on our boards. Yeah, I rarely hear a board say we need people with working class experience or from the estate or somebody who's disadvantaged on our boards because there's an expectation that they know less. And one of the things I quite often get is, yes, but they can only bring their own personal experience But in truth, that's all any of us can bring. If you're a graduate from Oxford, that's all you're bringing to the board is your personal experience. 
Whereas that person from that estate you bring to the board is likely to have a whole bunch of networks. You know, they're not just bringing their experience, are they? They're bringing the people they work with, their families, their neighbours. So I think there's a real snob value around, particularly in the charity sector, where they shouldn't be, frankly, around class. I think there's a real issue about conflating class and disadvantage. And even if you do do that, assuming disadvantaged people can't help themselves, thank you, it's a bit of a saviour complex. How I had it myself time and time again, because I haven't had the right cultural capital, because I haven't been to the right set of art galleries or can't talk about you know, the right set of uh, artistic endeavours, or because I remember at one point when I was very young, going to a youth worker training session, and I was young, I'm very political now, I wasn't then, it wasn't my family's background. And I remember asking someone to explain to me the difference between left and right. And before explaining it to me, they all laughed and took the mick out of me for days. But I didn't know that. So that piece, that's not a chip on my shoulder. That's just fact. So, yes, we have got an issue with class. And, yes, that impacts on pay, progression and confidence. And, yes, if you ask any of us who come from an estate, if that's affected our career, we can tell you, yes, it definitely has and consistently does. Mm. So can you clarify, would you categorize yourself as working class or have you moved beyond that you know I'm not working class by any definition now I have multiple degrees I earn well where I live means that by any contemporary definition I am not working class however there are some factors so none of my parents went to university so I'm the first in my family to go to university for example that would put me into some categories in some research methodologies would put me in a working class background still. But, you know, I'm middle class by any contemporary definition mm, now. Mm. So if someone is listening to this, is perhaps in a middle leadership role and defines him or herself as from a working class background and is experiencing some of those barriers you mentioned, what is your advice to support them to keep going so that they have the same chance to get yeah. to senior roles? Oh, I think it's twofold, isn't it? Right. So it's how much do you learn the rules and you know, do you go to some of those cultural capital events? Do you do that networking? How much, as my kids say, when I speak on the phone, I speak dead posh. When I speak at home, I don't. So how much do you play the game? I mean, that's true for all of us, right? We're all trying to fit in. We're all trying to find norms. So there's a piece of that. There's a piece of saying, okay, those are some of the rules of the game. Let me figure out how I can do some of those things. But I think the more important thing is to be authentic. You know, what you bring to the table, what is it you bring to understand that, to know that? You know, what I've learned over the years is I bring a perspective that most of the people sitting around the table with degrees from Oxford and Cambridge, not knocking Oxford and Cambridge, by the way, but who are the fifth, sixth, seventh generation of people to go to university in their family, they bring something. I bring something totally different. So I would urge them not to go too far down playing the game, but I get some of that. But really to think about what is my authentic self? Who am I? What do I bring to the table? And be able to articulate that clearly, but also to challenge those prejudices in the way that we have started to, albeit late, challenge prejudices around disability or working parents or BME people in the workplace. Challenge some of those perceptions too. So one of the things I did at White Chain, I was delighted they did it, was We've taken graduate out of nearly every job description. It wasn't necessary for most of them. That was a liberal, you know, liberal left, middle class piece. Taking every graduate out of most job descriptions was us challenging the system. So use your authentic self 
to improve things for you, but also for others. Mm. And there's a lot of research that says diverse leadership teams are getting better results. And so it seems a no-brainer that we try to make sure that there are people from various backgrounds represented. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, consistently diversity matters. Every single study, I'm a fellow of the Chartered Institute for you know, Personal Development, and I do a lot of work around organizational development as part of what I do consultancy on, as part of what I do is affect change in systems and in organizations. If you want to change, if you want to improve, if you want to have better sales results, if you want to improve commercially, if you want to improve from a social impact perspective, diversify your leadership team. If you're truly about those things, diversify your leadership team in as broad a way as possible. Do not maintain the status quo because actually that takes you down a very narrow path consistently the advice consistently the research if you want to protect the interests of a small group then don't diversify your Mm. board that's fine be honest about it and that's a legitimate position to take as well Mm -hmm. something quite different you mentioned you have a child with a learning difficulty and again that is a topic that i don't think we talk enough about Mm -hmm. um can you tell me what went through your head when you first learned about the learning difficulty and what you think about it now? It was slightly challenging in that my first degree was in education. So I actually studied learning disabilities and difficulties. So it's not, it wasn't a new topic for me. I'd always kind of worked on that access field. So in that sense, a lot of that wasn't new. And equally true, because it's actually two of my children have quite significant needs. It's also true to say that wasn't an overnight diagnosis. So it wasn't, neither of them were born and then there was an immediate, um, you know, this is the issue. It was for both of them sort of gradual realisation of the challenges they faced. And I think you go through a bunch of stuff, really. I think knowing more about it helped in some ways, but equally the fact that I knew a lot about it. Remember, by then I'd already set up the communication trust before I had one of the children with difficulties. Knowing about it also meant I knew what the challenges were going to be. And in some ways that's quite heartbreaking because what you're doing is you're loving your child and you're supporting your child, but at the same time, you're realising the challenges they're going to have. But that's true for any parent, particularly when you've got a child with additional needs, different needs, that society is not well-equipped to handle. And we are not well-equipped still to handle it. We have got miles better, but we still aren't. And, you know, that's a challenge. Yeah, that is a real challenge. And when, and also with my children, all of them will go to mainstream schools, have gone, will do. All of them should be able to go on to, you know, God willing, live independent lives they're almost in some ways, you know, they're on the edge of disability and that's kind of almost quite hard too. In fact, you know, it's difficult full stop, but it is a challenge. Um, we've got a school refusing child, screaming, refusing to go to school in the morning, even though their school is amazing. And I would stress the school we've moved into is amazing. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely heartbreaking, knackering and exhausting. And in a system that's circular and you find it really hard to find support. And I am as connected as they come, as able and articulate, middle class and able to pay for things. If I am struggling to find the support, if my husband and I are struggling to find the support, you've got to realise what's out there in the system and what people are not getting support, either from the system, from their employers, or just generally. That in itself, on a system level, I find heartbreaking. And it's one of the things I campaign on the most because it's fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whenever I see something popping up from you on Twitter or LinkedIn, it's quite often linked to raising awareness of this and seeking to change it. While the system isn't changed yet, what are your reflections about combining a leadership career with a child 
that has learning difficulties. I know I'm asking a really potentially quite dumb question, no. but you know, I can imagine that many people who have a, a child diagnosed with learning difficulty may think, well, do I have to give up? No. What's your reflection on that? I think there's a range of things. I think don't give up. Just don't give up, just generally. But I think don't give up in terms of, you know, if the career matters to you personally, and I'll come back to that in a second, but also, you know, we know that children with disabilities, their families are often struggling with poverty as well, certainly with low income. So, you know, you have to go to work, right? So it's not a choice. For many people, it's not a choice to go to work. It's not a luxury. They have to consider giving up. I think there's a range of things you can do. I think the first, again, I've said it before, but find support networks, find other parents. There are amazing groups on social media, Facebook, local forums. Find other people who are further down the road from you because that helps. That really massively helps. And that sort of social media community and face-to-face community has helped me and I hope I've helped others. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is talk to your employer. Really talk to them and you know, there are some things the employer can do. So my big thing was school refusing. So if my child was school refusing at the moment, you know, and that started, interestingly, just after I went back to, as you called it earlier, like a proper job, you know, and you're thinking you're, you're desperately sad for your child. You're desperately sad for your other children are waiting to go to school. You're both angry and upset. And the other thing that's going through your head is, oh, my God, I'm going to miss that first meeting of the day. Is my employer going to be furious? You need to talk to your employer. You need to tell them what your circumstances are. You need to find that flexibility and ask them to build that flexibility in, and the good employer will to build that in, but also challenge things. Because when I went back to work, one of the things, one day I'd had an awful morning, absolutely awful morning. I was late in and I got the train in and I was two hours late in. I was, meant, I was late for a meeting. And the person in the meeting said, well, you know, we shut people out of meetings if they're late because it shows they don't care. It shows they don't value other people's time. Now, I kind of get that to a point, except that, I'd just got there after the two of the worst hours I'd had for ages, leaving a screaming child going into school. That showed my commitment to coming into work. I was confident enough to challenge that behaviour. We all need to challenge that behaviour from our colleagues and our employees when they make sweeping statements like that. So I think find your network, talk to your employer, still try and find time for you. That's a nightmare for any parent, isn't it? It's particularly a nightmare for parents with children with special needs. Find respite. And make sure, again, you've researched both the law and all the benefits that you're entitled to. And there are additional benefits you might be entitled to if you're a parent of a child with difficulties. But it is harder. And I don't think employees, one of the things I was looking at is whether we should have badges and awards and accreditations for companies who are not just family friendly, but disabled family friendly. And I think those things matter. And it's certainly something I think we should look at going forward. Mm. That sounds really interesting. And do you think this experience has made you a different leader in any way? Yeah, without a doubt. I wrote once that I don't think, I think if you get to a position of leadership where you've had none of those personal challenges, I think you're a different type of leader. That's not to say you can't be empathetic. That's not to say you can't be a great leader. But I think you're a different leader. I think you can be a better leader if you've been through challenging and difficult times. I'm certainly a better campaigner for it. There's no doubt about that at all. On any issue of inequity, I'm a better campaigner because I've lived various inequities myself. I think as a leader, it helps you have perspective. I think it helps give you that different viewpoint. And I think your staff recognise it. I used the word authentic earlier. I think there's something about leaders saying, I'm not perfect. And when I had this challenge, this is how I dealt with it. This is what I got wrong. This is what I did well. I think authenticity in leadership is vital. I think it'll be one of the things that will get us through the next few years. 
it's one of the things I think we're all kind of missing at the moment in leadership generally across the country, wherever you stand politically, what people are concerned about at the moment is where is the authentic leader? Where is the authentic voice? Where is the person who's prepared to say I'm wrong or I've learned or I've improved? So without a doubt, I think I'm a better leader because I'm a parent. I think I'm a better leader because I'm a parent of children with difficulties. I think I'm a better leader because I've had to balance some challenges myself. Mm, mm. That's great to hear. We're coming to the end of our podcast time. And so I've heard fantastic feedback about you mentoring some of our fellows in previous years. Thank you so much for doing that. If you had to distill all the advice that you're giving to people, either Leaders Plus fellows or just parents that you meet through the course of life, what are the top three things that you tell them if they want to continue to progress their careers whilst looking after young children? I think the first one is uh, be where you're at. And that's the best advice I've got given, which is, you know, if you're with your kids, be with your kids, be with your kids fully. If you're at work, be at work fully. And the important one, if you're by yourself and having time for yourself, be by yourself and have time for yourself fully. So wherever you are at, don't be constantly thinking about the other two things. And that's really important. It's hard to do, but it's important to do. So let go of that guilt. Let go of that, I need to worry about the children's dinner tomorrow. Focus on the thing you are doing at that moment. Do it well and do it wholeheartedly. And apply that as much to the time you spend for yourself as you do working and as you do with your children and family. So I think that first one of be where you're at is definitely big advice. The second I think the advice I give to anybody really is be deliberate in your choices. I didn't learn that for a long time. I kind of bashed along with the ebb and flow and be deliberate. So think about what it is you really want and balance that across everything, home, work, self, and make choices that lead to that and accept that in your choices, you will lose other things. I have accepted that I lost choices about bigger jobs or roles because what was important for me was both a sense of purpose and ethical workplace and being with my children. So be deliberate in your choices and recognise what that costs and what that brings you. That's the second thing. And I guess the, the third thing overall is, is back to kind of what I said earlier as well about don't miss the basics. So understand the law, understand finances, understand budgeting, understand what benefits are available to you, understand what your employer has to do and not do. Those sound really boring things, you know, for a purpose-driven person but don't underestimate those things in your career consultancy life generally because those nuts and bolts hold the rest of it together Mm. so I think those are my three pieces of advice excellent advice as always Anita thank you very much thank you for listening today I want to spread this message that it is absolutely okay to love your ambitious career and love your children at the same time and I need your help to achieve this I would love to make a difference to more people and reach 1,000 listeners by September for this podcast. So if this podcast has helped you in any way, please do take a moment to share it with five of your friends and of course, do share it on social media. And like with any podcast, five stars reviews really help with the visibility. Um, Also, if you haven't already, do sign up to our newsletters on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter for inspiration and practical tips. Until next time, have a wonderful week.